My name is Brad Meltzer, and I wrote a novel called The Book of Fate. The Book of Fate came about in the strangest way I've ever started any novel. It came from a surreal fan letter, and the fan letter was written by former President Bush, who wrote to me saying he liked my novel, The Millionaires, and would I please sign a copy for him. So I don't care what your politics are. You're the former president. I'll send you a free book. So I sent Bush a free book, and I eventually sent him a letter back that said, can I come see what your life is like? Can I see what it's like to be the most powerful man in the world one day and the next day just be a guy who has to stop at red lights like the rest of us? Bush was kind enough to say yes, so I spent nearly a week in Houston with the Bushes, then sent another letter to former President Clinton's office in Harlem and got to go up there. So all the details you see in the Book of Fate about the former presidents, they're real, even though it's a thriller. My other obsession for the novel was the Freemasons, and I didn't know what Freemasons were. I didn't know they were part of the world's oldest and largest fraternity. But a friend of mine sent me a list of all the famous Freemasons. It was a list that included George Washington and Voltaire and Winston Churchill, a list that included John Wayne and Mark Twain, Bob Dole and Jesse Jackson and Harry Houdini. Eight signers of the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons, nine signers of the U.S. Constitution, and 15 U.S. presidents were Freemasons, going all the way up to LBJ and Gerald Ford. There are only 43 presidents, 15 are part of the same secret club. You better believe that's what I want as the seed for a great thriller. And so, here is chapter one of the Book of Fate. Six minutes from now, one of us would be dead. That was our fate. None of us knew it was coming. Ron, hold up, I called out, chasing after the middle-aged man in a navy blue suit. Ignoring me, Ron Boyle darted up the tarmac, passing Air Force One on our right and the 18 cars of the motorcade that idled in a single-file line on our left. As deputy chief of staff, he was always in a rush. That's what happens when you work for the most powerful man in the world. I don't say that lightly. Our boss was the president of the United States, and when he wanted something, it was my job to get it. Right now, President Leland Manning wanted Boyle to stay calm. Some tasks were beyond even me. Earlier today, Boyle was supposed to have a 15-minute sit-down with the president on Air Force One. Because of my scheduling error, he was now down to a three-minute drive-by briefing sometime this afternoon. To say he was annoyed would be like calling the Great Depression a bad day at the office. Ron, I said again, putting a hand on his shoulder. He spun around wildly, slapping my hand out of the way. Don't touch me again unless you're shaking my hand, he threatened, as a flick of spit hit me in the cheek. Any other 23-year-old would have taken a verbal swing. I kept my cool. That's the job of the president's aide, a.k.a. the body person. If I wanted Boyle quiet, if we didn't want a scene for the press, I needed to up the ante. What if I squeezed you into the president's limo right now, I asked him. Boyle's posture lifted slightly as he started buttoning his suit jacket. No, that's good. Great. Excellent, he told me. He thought all was forgiven. My memory's way longer than that. On the way home, he'd be riding in the back of the press van. Politically, I wasn't just good. I was great. That's not ego. It's the truth. Trailing Boyle and holding my leather shoulder bag out in front of me, I jumped into the back of the armored limo where the president was dressed casually in a black windbreaker and jeans. Hunched over as he headed for the back left seat, Boyle's suit jacket sagged open, but he quickly pressed his hand over his own heart to keep it shut. I didn't realize until later what he was hiding, or what I'd just done by inviting him inside. The jump seat directly across from the president, the hot seat, was already taken by Mike Kalinoff, retired professional race car driver, 
four-time Winston Cup winner and special guest for today's event. Three and a half minutes from now, the first gunshot would be fired. Two of us would crumble to the floor convulsing. One wouldn't get up. As we neared our destination, Manning stared silently through the light green tint of his bulletproof window. You ever hear what Kennedy said three hours before he was shot, he asked, putting on his best Massachusetts accent. You know, last night would have been a hell of a night to kill a president. Lee, the first lady, scolded, slapping his shoulder. See what I deal with, she added, fake laughing at Kalinoff. That was my last big, broad grin. In three minutes, the gunman's third bullet would rip through my cheek, destroying so many nerves I'd never have full use of my mouth again. Today in Daytona, Florida, we'd flown in so the president could yell, Gentlemen, start your engines at the Pepsi 400 NASCAR race. There was no better backseat in the world. Sir, we're about to enter the track, the detail leader announced from the front seat. Wait, we're going on the track, Kalinoff asked, suddenly excited. He shifted in his seat, trying to get a look outside. The president grinned. What, you thought we'd just get a couple seats in front? A baritone rumble filled the air. That thunderboil asked, glancing up at the clear blue sky. No, not thunder, the president replied, putting his own fingertips against the bulletproof window as the stadium crowd of 200,000 surged to its feet. That's applause. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, the announcer bellowed through the PA system. A sharp right-hand turn tugged us all sideways as the limo turned onto the racetrack, the biggest, most perfectly paved highway I'd ever seen in my life. I didn't care how close we were in the polls. With 10 million NASCAR fans watching on television, one lap around and we'd be picking out our seats for the inauguration. Across from me, Boyle wasn't nearly as thrilled. With his arms crossed against his chest, he never stopped studying the president. Got the stars out too, eh? Kalinoff asked as we entered the final turn, and he saw our welcoming committee, a small mob of NASCAR drivers all decked out in their multicolor, advertising-emblazoned jumpsuits. Outside, the drivers were already angling for presidential position. In 60 seconds, they'd be running for their lives. With a click and a thunk, the door cracked open. Twin switchblades of light and Florida heat sliced through the car, and the president lowered one of his unscuffed black sneakers onto the pavement. Please welcome, the announcer shouted through the stadium, our grand marshal for today's race, Florida's own, President Lee Manning. The president hopped out of the car, his right hand up in a wave, his left hand proudly patting a NASCAR logo on the top of his windbreaker. He paused for a moment to wait for the first lady. As always, you could read the lips on every fan in the grandstands. There he is, there he is, there they are. Then, as soon as the crowd had digested it, the flashbulbs hit. Mr. President, over here, Mr. President. He'd barely moved three steps by the time Boyle was right behind him. I stepped out last. The sunlight forced me to squint, but I still craned my neck to look up, mesmerized by the 200,000 fans who were now on their feet, pointing and waving at us from the grandstands. Two years out of college, and this was my life. Even rock stars don't have it this good. Approaching the drivers, the president grinned. In three seconds, he'd be surrounded, the one black windbreaker in a technicolor sea of Pepsi, M&M's, DeWalt, and Lone Star Steakhouse jumpsuits, as if he'd won the World Series, the Super Bowl, and the pop, pop, pop. That's all I heard. Three tiny pops, a firecracker, or a car backfiring. Shots fired, shots fired, the detail leader yelled. 
I was still smiling as the first scream tore through the air. The crowd of drivers scattered, running, dropping, panicking in an instant blur of colors. God gave power to the prophets, a man with black buzzed hair shouted from the center of the swirl. Kneeling down on one knee and holding a gun with both hands, he was dressed as a driver in a black and bright yellow racing jumpsuit. Like a bumblebee, I thought. I just kept staring at him, frozen. Sound disappeared, time slowed, and the world turned black and white. My own personal newsreel. Still locked on the bumblebee, I couldn't tell if he was moving forward or if everyone around him was rushing back. Man down, the detail leader shouted. I followed the sound and the hand motions to a man in a navy suit, lying face down on the ground. Oh no. Boyle. His forehead was pressed against the pavement, his face screwed up in agony. He was holding his chest and I could see blood starting to puddle out from below him. Man down, the detail leader shouted again. My eyes slid sideways, searching for the president. I found him just as a half-dozen jumpsuited agents rushed forward. Move him now, an agent yelled. The gunman roared as a separate group of agents in jumpsuits got a grip on his neck, his arm, the back of his hair. In slow motion, the bumblebee's head snapped back, then his body as two more pops ripped through the air. I felt a bee sting in my right cheek. And examine good from evil, the man screamed, arms spread out like Jesus' agents dragged him to the ground. I slapped my own face, trying to kill whatever just bit me. I looked as the puddle below Boyle grew even larger. His head was now resting in a milky white liquid. He'd thrown up. A few feet ahead, our detail leader and another suit-and-tie agent gripped Manning's elbows, lifted him from the pile, and shoved him sideways straight at me. The president's face was in pain. I looked for blood on his suit, but didn't see any. Picking up speed, his agents were going for the limo. Two more agents were right behind them, gripping the first lady under her armpits. I tried to sidestep, but wasn't fast enough. At full speed, the detail leader's shoulder plowed into my own. Falling backward, I crashed into the limo, my rear end hitting just above the right front tire. I still see it all. Me trying to keep my balance, slapping my hand against the car's hood, and the splat from my impact. Sound was so warped I could hear the liquid squish. The world was still black and white, everything except for my own red handprint. Confused, I put my hand back to my cheek. It slid across my skin, which was slick and wet and raw with pain. Go, 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 someone screamed. Tires spun, the car lurched, and a limo sped out from under me. Like a soda can forgotten on the roof, I tumbled backward, crashing on my rear. But all I could really feel was the tick-tock, tick-tock pumping in my cheek. I looked down on my palm, seeing that my chest and right shoulder were soaked, not by water, thicker and darker, dark red. Oh God, is that my blood? Another flashbulb went off. I again touched my cheek. My fingertips scraped against something sharp, like metal or... Is that bone? My stomach nosedived, swirling with nausea. I touched my face again with a slight push. That thing wouldn't budge. What's wrong with my face? Two more flashbulbs blinded me with white, and the world flew at me and fast forward. I'm not feeling a pulse, a deep voice yelled in the distance. Directly ahead, two suit-and-tie Secret Service agents lifted Ron Boyle onto a stretcher and into the ambulance from the motorcade. His right hand dangled downward, bleeding from his palm. I replayed the moments before the limo ride. He never would have been there if I didn't put him there. Help, I called out, though nothing left my lips. The grandstands tilted like a kaleidoscope. I fell backward, crashing into the pavement, lying there, my palm still pressed against the slippery metal in my cheek. 
Sirens sounded, but they weren't getting louder, softer. They quickly began to fade. Boyle's ambulance, leaving. They were leaving me. One woman screamed in a perfect C minor. The sirens withered to a faint whistle. I tried to lift my head, but it didn't move. A final flashbulb hit, and the world went completely white. That day, because of me, Ron Boyle died. Eight years later, he came back to life. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.